Welcome to another segment of the Grass, you know, I'll get this right, it is January 9th, 2007, there you go. And with us today is Alan Watt, and uh, the website is cuttingthroughthematrix.com, please check that out if you want, we'll talk a lot about the website throughout the day, um, <clears throat> and thank you very much for coming with us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on. Okay, I wish, I'm, I wish my mic was. Anyway... <laughs> How many times have I done this? Like something like 617, and okay, never mind. Uh, a lot of things to talk about, if you will. Um, a listener had asked for you to come back on, uh, and w- w- I know you 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 gotten, uh, I guess, pretty popular out there. And what I said to him, I said, well, could you bring up a topic you haven't heard Alan speak to? I said that would be a good idea. I mean, I'd, I'd like that. And he said, fine. And he he uh, um, tabled two possibilities. But before we get to that, uh, what I want to ask you two things. Um, uh, now we're shooting up Somalia, and uh, you got any ideas, Alan, as to what that's all about? Yeah, I've got old books. Uh, I generally follow the old books from the Royal Institute of International Affairs with their world policies. They've been publishing and putting out there for 50-odd years or more. And they talked about the whole of Africa, and they, mentioned, they did mention Somalia and the vast untapped uh, oil reserves that one day they would have to exploit. So you're, you're just seeing the unfolding of a well-laid business plan where each part of the plan unfolds at the right time according to their strategies. And also, the Africa, which we know is a basket case, it truly is. Yes, yes. As, as has been fomented with wars and all the rest of it, the cultures are destroyed. And according to the old Darwinian theory too, which is true, this part's true anyway, that the superior culture, once it dominates the lesser, the lesser will either have to adapt very quickly or die. And we see that uh, that strategy being used in Africa. They've lost their culture. They can't adapt to the West. They don't have the financial resources either. Uh, corruption is rampant because the West has been funding warlords. They're just mm-hmm. like mafia crooks. Uh, so now it's time to go in and clean it up, and, and that means taking over and amalgamating Africa, because under the European Union plan, Africa was to become like a united continent like Europe mm-hmm. before it joins, and Mandela's been pushing for the united African uh, continent to become into one big power block structure. So all the different countries have to be wiped out, basically, with their borders and re-amalgamated under this new structure. So we're seeing the, the push for that now. They've been killing off the Africans for years now with AIDS and everything else. So uh, they're, they're well on, on their way to where they want to go. Yeah, I think we forget that um, the first time I think we ever heard of AIDS, it was associated, I think specifically, uh, with women uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, uh, it first broke out, really, uh, in Haiti, and then hit Africa. And, if you tr- and it was right after the United Nations World Health Organization had gone through with free uh, smallpox, mm-hmm. smallpox vaccinations. And you can follow the trail of the smallpox vaccinations, and that's the trail of the AIDS. There's, there's no doubt on that. That's been well exposed by now. Uh, we've forgotten by some, but it's, it's, it's out there. Yeah, uh, we had on yesterday uh, Kevin Annette uh, out from out in Vancouver, who was chronicling the uh, genocide of uh, Aboriginal people in Canada. Yeah, with that same methodology. And, of course, the United States pulled that off <clears throat> with the, uh, the Native Americans uh, with the smallpox scam as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, isn't it possible to... Um, you take a look at sub-Saharan Africa, also many parts of South America, and even Southeast Asia. And is it my imagination, or these cultures, and I would say been deliberately uh, de you know, 
whatever that word is. They've not allowed uh, technology. They seem to have been suppressed. Uh, could it be because of all that's beneath the very land these people walk upon? Uh, it's, it's a good part of it. There's no doubt on that at all. In fact, uh, if you read the writings of Cecil Rhodes that was sent in to South Africa primarily, but he, he didn't mention just South Africa. He talked about taking over the whole continent eventually under a long-term plan. Uh, but he said that there's, there's millions of people on this land doing nothing with it. That's what he said. You'll find that kind of statement used by guys like um, like Mill, who was the big economist for Britain in the 1700s. Then his son, John Stuart Mill, took over. They, they had all the races, the American Indians, uh, the, the, the Africans, um, in a sort of... Um, uh, very much like Adolf Hitler's list of, of subspecies that, that would either have to adapt, and if they couldn't, they would have to be, and that's what he said, have to be eradicated. And Cecil Rhodes went along with his agenda, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said those who could not mimic the white man would have to be eradicated because they're sitting on land which will have to be exploited one day for its mineral mm-hmm. and oil resources. So they knew exactly where they were going, and we're watching the grand finale of that as they wipe out the what they call surplus population. Yeah, um, I also, uh, I guess you're familiar with Romeo Dallaire, yeah, who had done that Shake Hands with the Devil documentary in which he realized, being a UN uh, military man, that when he went down to Rwanda, that in fact the UN nor the Vatican, and he placed it right on their doorstep as well, had any intention of stopping what was going on down there. Oh, he was well aware of it. Uh, uh, Delaire, uh, strange enough, see, Delaire was a, was a military man. He was a, uh, a, a general. Mm-hmm. And he be, I guess he spent many, many years in the military, so he had a military mindset. And he was sending all these reports back to the United Nations saying, look, this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, a man came in, a native came in with the plan, with the maps of the attack and how it was to, to begin. Now, this thing was fomented initially, strangely enough, by France that had armed one side. France had been arming one side as a paramilitary organization supposedly to keep the peace. These are the ones who eventually went on the rampage and started it all off. Now, Dallaire had all that information. He sent it to the United Nations, and he could not figure out, still doesn't either, he can't because of his military mindset, why the United Nations simply did not stop it or send them reinforcements. So he was left with a bunch of Belgian troops who were, there were crack troops, but uh, there, there were too few of too them few, to do anything right. about it. So he went through this whole morass of watching the slaughter, feeling helpless, uh, and still sending dispatches off to the United Nations, and he was getting silence in return. He still cannot figure it out. The United Nations wanted this to happen. And yeah. now he works for an NGO organization mm-hmm. of ex- expert people, including military people, uh, in one of these new boards that are meant to bridge the gaps between peoples. He still hasn't figured it out. Yeah, um, also, uh, Kevin yesterday was a little uh, critical of him saying, you know, I guess becoming a... Or he, he's, I, I'm not real good with Canadian politics, sorry. He's not a member of parliament, but he's a senator, right? Uh-huh. And, and basically what he thought happened with the layers is that they kicked him upstairs and shut him up. I don't think it was even just that. That's part of it, perhaps. But Delir, you see, after that happened, Delir um, left the military. Uh, um, he became a drunk, mm-hmm. an alcoholic binge. He was suicidal and tremendously depressed. He went right down to the bottom because he still couldn't figure out. His dilemma was the clash of his indoctrination mm-hmm. uh, versus his experience. The reality. He couldn't reconcile the two. He still had to have faith in something. 
and and uh, then he was approached by the United Nations. Now they have lots of these big NGOs uh, that are recruiting experts from different fields into, and these new NGOs are supposedly helping to create dialogue and prevent these things happening in the future. So he's joined the very camp that caused it and brought it on in the first place. Yeah, we love the NGOs, and what is there, about 70 or more now underneath the umbrella of the United Nations? Yes. Now, uh, I stepped out this morning uh, to pick up a newspaper to find out what the competition's doing, and two things happened. Uh, I want to run both by it. One is, um, you know, chemtrails are not new to any of us. Uh, I did get a phone call that when I got back home from another uh, radio show host uh, south of the bay, um, who said, did you take a look at what's going on out there? It's such a dry day, and the temperature's down in the 60s, he said, and, and it's, it's as heavy as anything. I said, yeah, I know, I saw it too. <clears throat> and... Um, but a funny thing, uh, you know, what I was saying to him, and, and you know, Alan, uh, you've experienced this as well. Um, I saw somebody who put out an article that that really, I kind of played up the potential pathology of the chemtrails. And while I'm sure it's not good to inject stuff into the air that you know kind of well didn't come with the earth, um, you know, what my, my point is still. But I'm thinking to myself, it's like, well, look, the elite's got to live on this planet as well, and I don't see them walking around with oxygen tanks. I mean, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but could it be more about weather modification and not necessarily trying to, uh, across the board, weaken all uh, human species? I mean, what do you think? I think it's multi-purpose. These guys never do one thing for one reason. They always have multi-purposes behind it. They get lots of bangs for their buck. And I, I do think it's to affect the people. The people are losing their memory, short-term memory too, even younger people. Um, it's dumbing them down. They're way too complacent. But if you were uh, on the other side, the, you would use all of these warfare weapons at this particular time when you're bringing the world through the biggest change culturally and otherwise that it's ever had for thousands of years. You don't want a, a thinking, sentient population as you bring all these changes to pass. Because this is nothing to where we're supposed to go shortly. There will be big, very big changes that are going to occur shortly. So, uh, so yeah, they're breathing this stuff in. But, you know, there are also advanced sciences uh, where they can filter this stuff from their bodies with even portable machines the size of a, a cigarette pack that you could carry around in your pocket. It's not available to the general public. Very much like the stuff that they use for, for uh, people with uh, kidney problems, renal dialysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have advanced ones that they could be walking around with uh, for the elite. And I'm sure that's what they're doing. Well, um, there are some people out there uh, who are, I guess, trying to approximate that kind of technology as best they can in a homeopathic sense. That, and, and really, probably one of the greatest things all of us can do is pay a little more attention and follow uh, the practice of detoxifying. If possible, but I, I see, I, I don't like talking um, as though I'm a defeatist. I don't mean to, to sound like that. But I don't think the public really realize the, what they're up against. They're still thinking in terms of all the information they've been given so far. There's always three levels of science on the go simultaneously. Everything that we know from the magazine rack on science to, to professorship down is the lowest level. Now, most of the diseases today are man-made. They've been made in laboratories. Mm -hmm. And that's why the herbalist stuff and so on is not working with it. Mm. It's not working. These are not dummies at the top. They have have incredible uh, understanding of how to put together, how to construct bacterium and viruses. 
and uh, that's why the, the, the normal stuff isn't working. These are not normal diseases. Uh, and, and I hate to promote some, uh, there are some terrible quacks out there too making millions of dollars on people by selling false information mm -hmm. or products, etc. Um, people have to be aware of this and, and understand that don't, don't give in to fear and simply panic buy. You've got to do some homework first. And, and generally you can find the, the, the stuff for detoxification in the old herbal books printed up until the 20th century. That anything that's, that's, that's supposed to be new is nonsense because herbs have been here for thousands and thousands of years and even the ancient Egyptians had them all catalogued as to what worked and what didn't. Well, when you talk about three levels of science, um, I ran across this. I wasn't looking for this, but uh, <clears throat> this comes from Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, written in 1953. You can't make this stuff up. This is supposedly science fiction. And here's the quote. Far away over the lake, something was coming in from the west, flying low and fast. Aircraft were, common, were uncommon in these parts, unless one counted the transpolar lines which must be passing overhead every hour of the day and night, but there were never any sign of their presence, save an occasional vapor trail high against the blue of the stratosphere. So, I don't know if that's a coincidence. Um, Not a coincidence. Even H.G. Wells, in his uh, book, uh, Ship of Things to Come, where he's talking about a new world order, an amalgamated world under a, a scientifically-led government, he called, which he called Freemasonry of the air. <laughs> it was to be a, an air force that literally sprayed gases all over the planet to mm. and, uh, uh, you know, affected the people below. Uh, I, I had 1920s. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, I, I had to share this with you. It wasn't one of the high points of my radio career. But we had a guest on to speak to, um, <laughs> you know, what, what's happening today with aspartame and MSG. Uh -huh. And we were talking about Alzheimer's. And I, <laughs> I said to her, oh, what, what's that disease again? I can't remember it. <laughs> it's Alzheimer's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, wasn't, that didn't look real good for me. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> eventually clicks, you know, breathe a sigh of relief. Well, thanks for the help there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, another thing that happened when I was out and about, oh, well, let me go back to this. I don't know if you've heard this terminology again. I got myself into a little bit of a, a fix if I ever go back to the store. Late last night, well, not late last night, last night I was going to uh, cover a sporting event, went into a convenience store, and there's a guy behind the counter, and he was tattooed to the max, the illustrated man. And I took a look at some of them, and I remembered seeing him before in the summertime when he was uh, short-sleeved. And I look at him, and he's got a hat on with the big, you know, Mason G and stuff. So I was feeling a little feisty. So um, I said, you a Mason? He says, yeah. I said, what degree? He said, 33. I said, that's got it right, huh? He goes, are you down? And I went, yeah, but I'll talk to you later. <laughs> so, uh -huh, yeah. so what is, are you down? Is this, a, is this Mason jargon, like you and the Brotherhood, or what? It, it can be. There's a lot of new terms a lot of them are using. They think it's trendy. Well, yeah, it's kind of hip-hop to say you're down, you know. Yeah. But uh, the next thing I was thinking to do was reaching over to shake his hand, but I, I, had, I would have to have gotten that right one time only. That's right. <laughs> all right, now, coming back in the truck, uh, I have it tuned to the fascist Nazis that are on all the AM stations, Hannity and the boys, and I got Glenn back to especially uh, repulsive. And he's got on Rick Santorum. I guess was he re recently defrocked senator from Pennsylvania. Yeah. So I'm listening to this guy, and I really don't know who it is yet. But um, I'm, I'm hearing Rick, I'm hearing Rick, and I think, well, this is probably Santorum. And he's going on and on and on, just like Beck does about, you know, bad old Islam and 
liberals and they all suck. They're all the reason for everything in the world. And now he's coming out with some kind of policy center or organization called uh, American Enemies. I go to his website, and I'm thinking to myself, where is this, where is this guy coming from, and where in the world was he raised? I mean, this is just flat-out hate-mongering, and I can't believe it. And I look at him, you know, and he's a backhand and a half of all people. I could take it from Jesse Ventura, maybe, but not him. But, I mean, uh, you know, American enemies. What is going on here? I mean, it's... probably find he is... Uh, see, I've noticed that most of the things that happen in the public limelight, uh, it's just a drama for the public. And, and, and it really woke me up when Nixon... I came out with the scandal and uh, his drama of he didn't lie to the people, etc. Um, and we thought that was the last of Nixon, and yet Nixon hadn't been demoted. It wasn't until he died we found out that all that time afterwards, he was a main go-between for setting up the policies for the coming China. Full time. Hmm. Uh, and that was kept secret from the public. That was the most important job the U.S. could possibly get him at that time. I um, I remember during that period also, um, I had me driving to Bergen County, New Jersey, uh, not in the neighborhood I lived in, but um, coming upon this rather Tony house in, in a you know in a Tony neighborhood, uh-huh. and I saw uh, suits out in front, and I said to the guy I was driving, "What's that all about?" He goes, "That's Nixon's house." Mm-hmm. He finished his days out in Park Ridge, New Jersey, at least on on you know on the East Coast. So, um, uh, but uh, let's see, uh, moving along as far as. Um, uh, the topics that a listener wanted to at least hear you speak to. And this is one of them, and that is, what about money? Money as we know it today. Um, if civilizations have more or less repeated the same behavior and uh, the same pursuits, uh, was money always there? And if so, it, did it ever really work? Yeah, it always works when it's there. It always works in the same way, because money is an artificial... Um, actually, it, it's a deviant creation. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. a natural creation. It's no. a deviant creation. It comes between um, people who barter real goods uh, and exchange things. So the third man uh, becomes the boss, the guy who gets you to believe money is like the equivalent of what you're selling or trading. He becomes the boss over you because ultimately he always decides what it's worth. And then, he, then in from that comes taxation. It's hard to tax drain off people and, and get armies to go around. Uh, even get an army together is very difficult to do. You can't hold them together without money to pay them. Money is the unnatural creation itself. And it's interesting, even in Scotland up until about the 1700s in the Highlands, nails were worth more than... In fact, they traded nails for money because at least it was practical. You could use them. Mm-hmm. Uh, most folk used to barter uh, not, uh, even in the southern states uh, up until the property taxes came in people used to barter even their labor and um, that they eventually get jobs to get into the system to earn money to pay taxes when that law came through <clears throat> you know I don't know how you feel about the spiritual but I'm going to run a buy and whatever you have to say to it fine uh-huh. um, I look at you know, it, you know it says in scripture that the love of, of, of money Mm-hmm. is the root of all evil, the love of money. But yeah, money... Well, they had to, because when the Catholic Church wrote that, they'd already been using money since 800 B.C. What? They, they, they depended upon money <coughs> for their taxation to keep the church going. They had to rewrite that part, yeah. Well, w- w- 
what I'm thinking is, is that money always seems to be included in a, uh, shall we say, a wrong-minded uh, power grab. And it seems to have been this way through almost every civilization. Now, I, I read The Babylonian Woe, which was very interesting, uh, where it, I guess the author right there chronicles what took place in Samaria. And I'm here no stranger to this either, but it was, is it that every civilization, no matter how far back, I mean, as much as anybody can really know about such things, uh-huh. did, was there a process where almost every culture or every civilization went through the barter and then somebody... And this is where I'm going with, with the more or less uh, evil side. But then somebody gets it in their head. Hey, we, we can run the scan with having something represent something else. That's right. Well, that all came from the ancient times. Uh, um, <clears throat> if you were to take the Phoenicians, the Phoenicians were the world traders for, for hundreds of years. And I don't think they disappeared. They just transformed it in other people as time went by. Uh, even their name is occultic. Um, so what they were doing even thousands of years ago was standardizing the, the old world, the ancient world. Because initially they'd come in and trade goods, they'd barter straight swaps for this, for that. And then the next time they'd come, they'd, they'd definitely went for the women. They wrote about it, their techniques. Uh, they would set a little boat off from the main ship to shore, uh, set up a bonfire at night, put some, some uh, wine and even beer there and uh, jewelry for the women. And the women were always more adventurous than the males. They would come to the fire first. They would, they would pick up the jewelry, etc. And then the men would come in. They'd get a little drunk. Then the other guys would roll back uh, out from the main ship and join them. And uh, that's how they would get them into their system. You take the whole port system. It's called customs. And what they did was study the customs of the natives and then found out the weak points to exploit them, how to exploit them. So they'd trade with them a few times, and then the next thing they went back, they would say you would have to they'd only accept money. And they would say, well, what's money? Then they'd show them what it was. Then they would leave a representative there, who was really a banker, who would dispense the money to them, and then get real wealth in return. Mm-hmm. They'd bring real goods to the banker. So when the ship came the next time, they had money to use for the trading. That's how it started. On this end of this last civilization, however far you want to go back, maybe to the beginning of the last uh, millennium, uh-huh. um, could we fix uh, the Templars, the Knights Templar, as perhaps the ones who came up with the idea of you know, what I would say is representational money? I don't even think they were. I think the, uh, the Knights Templar are couched in mystery because it wasn't a new idea. It was simply the reemergence of an old idea recurring again. So, so they had to have known where their goals were, 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 were at the very beginning. Um, and, uh, and they had connections in the Middle East to begin with, to, when they even set up the order. But nine knights, again, it's just nine Kabbalistic knights, could go into the Middle East and just set up on the, on, on the Holy Mount. Um, you'd have to be friends with the people there to be allowed to do that in the first place before they got their charter from the Pope. So they were already in cahoots with, with certain, we call them secret societies, um, in the Middle East, like, like the Ishmaelis, you see. They were already in cahoots with them. But yeah, they were given the honor of bringing the first, um, and it's not really true, they weren't the first to do it, but they certainly made it a worldwide system of, mm-hmm. of banking, where you could actually take deposit money in London, uh, go to the Middle East, and withdraw it with your, your check that they'd given, the note they'd given you, you could withdraw it in the Middle East, and vice versa. So they were an international banking group. Um, 
they're, they're running a, a commercial which is fairly humorous for Capital One. I don't know if you've ever seen these characters, the medieval characters. No. Okay, and um, and s- supposedly they're running the banking system now since the uh, I guess the plundering is over with, uh, and the uh, the hordes are all you know done. Uh, and it got me wondering though. Um, was there any kind of considerable banking system that you're aware of through your research that took place in medieval uh, and monarchical Europe? Oh, yeah. The, the, the nice Templars became the bankers of the whole okay. of Europe, and uh, royalties put their whole treasuries in their hands. And even after they were supposedly uh, extinguished, it wasn't true at all in England. They still run England. And... Um, the Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, is a temp, nice Templar position even today. That's like the, the, the head of your Treasury Department still today. He's appointed by Parliament. And the Exchequer was the, the HQ of the Knights Templars for London. That's still there today. Um, that's where your legal system also comes from, the Bar Association. That's part of the Exchequer Society. They call it the Temple Bar. Uh, that's still all Freemasonic. And uh, the H comes from the, uh, the the floor. It's like a square between buildings, mm-hmm. uh, which is a chessboard. That's where they made their their, their deposits, their their, their um, what was owed and what they what they lent, or uh, what they were getting in as, as, as profit. That was done on a chessboard, uh, a huge chessboard, a hundred yards long. Mm. Sounds like that, that comes from. Sounds like the floor of the um, in Masonic lodges, huh? It is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you. It was um. Was Exchequer once a, uh, if not a title of nobility, but of respect? I mean, was this something like, with with barristers being, I guess, what esquires, and, and of course, you know, nobles and stuff being served? Was Exchequer something of uh, merit? Oh, it still is. I mean, this is, this is still on the go today. It hasn't changed. It's still Knights Templar. They never disappeared. Their their HQ is still in London, and. Uh, uh, as I say, the, the, the Chancellor, they call it the Chancellor of the Exchequer, is still appointed every time a Parliament sits. They appoint somebody to be uh, the Chancellor. That, that's the man. That's like your Treasury Department. Mm. That's what it is, in fact. Um, are you familiar with that uh, information about the lost 13th Amendment? I've heard bits about it. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know how valid it is. It seems so. Um, uh, some reputable sites had uh, the language up there, and of course, that never came to be because somehow it disappeared uh, during the uh, War of 1812 and, and the 13th Amendment, as we know it, uh, I guess freeing uh, the slaves, doesn't pop up for another, gee, you know, almost 70 years later. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it, could it have been that uh, that was very, um, that it was valid, the 13th Amendment was warning people about what, that uh, those who hold ranks of nobility in the United States should not be in government, and that would be obviously the sirs and the, you know, was knighted uh, exchequer and perhaps esquire. Um, yeah. The only thing about that is it, it might have been one of those things that sounded good to do, but when you consider how many lawyers were in the framers, I, I don't know if that was going to get too far. I, I couldn't really see it happening. Um, Franklin himself said that we've adopted British law. <laughs> yep. And because it was the best law he, that he could find, that's what he said himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, all the even the common law came from Britain, mm-hmm. um, and so even in his day, and he had no qualms about going over and meeting the Rothschilds. He met the Rothschilds, you know, mm-hmm. Franklin. In fact, it was him that, that discussed with Rothschild how the American strip money worked, and uh, I think personally because they were in cahoots. My, that's my own opinion. Oh yeah, he reminds. Uh, yeah, this was to be a worldwide system, 
and I think even the Revolutionary War was a bit of a scam because mm -hmm. there are British lodges that were part of the military uh, that still put on display Washington's signature in their lodge books when they used to cross the lines and, and join their lodge meetings. And he wasn't the only one either. A lot of his officers did the same. Well, that's interesting you should say that because it's something I wanted to bring up to you in the second half of the show, and I'll do that just uh, like what you were talking about, the scam of the revolution. Before we go any further, though, it's 29 minutes after the hour. Uh, and we haven't talked much about the, the website, Alan, and, and uh, I've not spoken to you, I guess, for maybe a month, six weeks or so. Uh, what's new on the website that people can uh, check out? Uh, there's more shows there that have done. Um, they're all free for download. There's, there's a lot they can go through. Uh, in fact, they'll find a lot of the, the answers to the questions that they email me are already discussed in previous uh, talks on various shows. And um, I'm on television tonight uh, from Louisiana, although it's without the satellite as well, worldwide. Um, uh, that's from Itali, I think it's called. I'm not familiar with that. How, um, how can people tune that in? Uh, it's a, it's a, they can get it in Louisiana on, I think, Channel 15, but it's also on... Um, satellite television okay. as well. It's on my website anyway if they want to check it. Well, you have your worldwide on Amazon satellite? Uh, I don't have it myself, but this particular show will be. Okay. Yeah. All right, and that's happening uh, tonight? Tonight, yeah. And that would be 7.30 Eastern? About 7, I think. It's 7.30, that's right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just ask me about your website, I'll tell you. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> and there's more books to come out this winter if I have time to do it. It's, it's kind of hard to run everything yourself, as you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, when you try to write and uh, do your own dishes and all the rest of it <laughs> uh, and answer all the emails and just survive. But I've got to do it this winter and get more stuff out, more DVDs too. Plus there's stuff for sale on the site if they want it that I've done as well. Okay. All right, and that's cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And uh, I'll tell you one thing, though. That has got to be the most colorful homepage I've ever seen. Yeah, it's, it's strangely enough, I mean, it's attracted an awful lot of attention, the right kind of attention too. Mm-hmm. Because I've had big hits from the uh, the authorized front men who supposedly speak for everyone else. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, big hits uh, and offers as well if I would just compromise on certain things. And uh, I, I haven't, of course. Well, all right, let me ask you this. You don't have to answer it, but that'll be a yes anyway. <laughs> um, have you been approached by any of uh, the, the two larger, as they would call it, alternative networks down here? Uh... I probably have. I've, I've had so many offers from all the, the ones in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, even from the U.K., because there's some authors out there spending a lot of uh, disinformation along with the truth, which is counterintelligence, you call it. I've had offers from there as well. I also had a, a guy who makes most of the movies for these big boys approach me. He phoned me up uh, in the summertime and talked for about two hours and he, and he wanted to come up right away and do a movie with me <coughs> he just come back from Britain doing, doing the big boys ones over there and the only thing was I wouldn't go along with the alien agenda and I think he got the message you know the space alien stuff and the mm -hmm. red alien stuff and all that and that's the last I heard from him so I've, I've had the offers to come in and more I could see a lot more but I won't on the air <laughs> okay wait when was the last time that you went back to the UK Oh, it's about uh, 1990. Jeez, okay. Uh, the reason I ask is because invariably, uh, every couple of weeks, uh, somebody from the UK uh, will uh, email me, fell upon the show somehow, some way, 
and they all decry the fact that there seems to be a lack of that being generated in the UK itself. Now, one, if that is true, I mean, not that they would be lying, but that you know might be a misconception. But if that is true, uh, do you have any idea why that would be? What, what specifically? Well, he was saying that like the shows that we do here. You know, my show, your show, it, it doesn't seem to be generated in the U.K. They're always listening to what's taking place in, in North America. Uh-huh. Now, uh, if that is so, could you think of any reason why uh, this isn't being picked up at the same fire, more or less, in the U.K.? The, the U.K. is far more socialized. I mean, I grew up in a socialized system. It's hard for most folk in America to imagine you grew up in a system where everything is authorized by government ministries. Uh, even as you grow up, uh, they are the ultimate authorities. It's the big brother of George Orwell. Um, and so because of that, the public are more trained into accepting the status quo, even though they might not like it. They accept it much more readily. Mm. They, they, they can see no alternative. They feel hopeless, actually. That's the word for it. They feel hopeless. Uh, and powerless under this this monstrosity of a system, mm-hmm. this totalitarian type system. Um, Britain's been at this game much much longer of psychological warfare through media control than than the U.S. And again, in, in Britain you have far fewer television stations. Uh, when I grew up, there was only one. That was the BBC, owned by the British government. You know. Later they brought in more stations, so uh, they, they've had no no alternative way of looking at things. Um, well, that might be an indication of, of where we'll be in another decade or two, in the sense that oh, yeah, sooner. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, and that is, uh, you know, I, I got to say this to you, Alan. One of the things that's really bothering me lately is that the people who listen to shows like this, uh, you know, to RBN, GCN, or whatever, it's been hitting me that perhaps the same thing that we kind of uh, ridicule the drooling masses uh, for being sedated by mainstream news, I'm getting this awful feeling that the same thing is happening on this side of the street. Now, that's I'm kind sure. Of, I'm sure. What, you see, if you, how intelligence works, because governments have intelligence and counterintelligence departments, so they're not idiots here. It's, it's not like they, they're novices. They, they run the system. They always have. Every country has. Mm-hmm. And it's not important who gives you the information that you're trying to avoid at times, because most of the information is extraneous, it's superfluous, it's meant to overload you. So if you avoid the news and avoid all the little senators who said this and did that and all the rest of it, all the drama, you turn into the Patriot stations and they're giving you the stuff that you've missed. So it doesn't matter who gives it to you as long as you get it. understand? That's how it works. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, listening like watching TV is passive. Not that it's not good to do. Uh-huh. But I think that at a certain point, uh, and, and, you know, one of the, the big catchphrases uh, that uh, it's being used in alternative Patriot Radio uh, is that whole story about the, uh, the, the frog gradually being boiled. But the thing is, I'm starting to get the feeling that there's a whole lot of frogs in this side of the street that are getting boiled. Oh, oh there are. There are. And disinformation was up there, too. Um, yeah. I keep telling people that it's not a matter of getting something back, like, like get America back. I don't know what they mean by that. What, what era are they talking about? Uh, who controlled the country then? Um, you can't get things back. History doesn't work that way. Uh, all you can do is, is go outside 
off the alternative they're giving you and take off in a direction that they never chose or one that they don't control. Uh, yeah, and that, again, that's something I'd like to touch upon a little bit later. And we've got plenty of things to talk about. But on the other hand, also, there's a lot of people out there. If uh, somebody wants to make a comment uh, or ask a question, by all means, send a, an email to visigoth at hotmail.com. And if you're using MSN Messenger IM service, uh, just send it to Visigoth. So go ahead, folks, and, and shoot anything by you want to. Uh, regarding uh, civilizations, and it's, uh, well, I, I'm hearing a lot of people, again, on this side of the street, uh, talking almost new age-ish, if not exactly new age-ish, about how, uh, you know, uh, this, uh, this collective consciousness and we're, we can all make things better. And I know before we came on the air, or just the, actually in the beginning of our uh, uh, interview, you're saying you don't want to sound pessimistic, but sometimes you got to call something what it is. Yeah. Uh, and that's just the way it is, folks. I mean, you're born in a certain epoch, and that's, that's the way it goes. Um, but, you know, I, I don't see how that's going to happen. And here's where I'm going with this. What I would say to some people, or I have, and that is, if, if it were so that people could rise up and, and, uh, and create a civilization that didn't have a corrupt oligarchy, my point is, it'd still be around today. I mean, have you seen any, or have you gotten any kind of whiff of any civilization throughout time that kind of reached some kind of bliss, if you will, or, you know, some uh, uh, <clears throat> Shangri-La? Uh, yeah, once again, you have to do a mind twist to understand what normality is. We have a cultural normality that's been given to us. We think it's normal because it exists. Uh, there are many ways that society can go. Lenin said it himself. Lenin knew it because he was taught by the bankers. Uh, they understood the economics and, and economics down through the, the, the millennia. Uh, they knew understood cultures. Um, we know, for instance, that when the Rome came in, the Roman army came into to, uh, Europe, uh, they looked at a society that was completely different from theirs, which they they'd adopted, actually, from the Middle East. In Europe, uh, they said that the, there was no marriage in the tribes, especially in the Celtic tribes. The women all lived in the, the center of the tribe where they were safe. They brought up the children communally. The women, as always, were the gatekeepers to any sexual contact. They said yes or no, or come here, or go away. Mm-hmm. And um, there was no stigma attached to that. The only ones who made it up were the older ones who found someone they could get along with and really knew well. Because no one understands a spouse when you're 16 or 18. It's impossible. You don't understand yourself. Yeah. Yourself, yeah. <laughs> so um, that was the first, when, Ro- when Rome, actual uh, uh, Roman religion came in. The first law that they made uh, mandatory was marriage and marriage for life. Hmm. That was the Middle Eastern system being reintroduced into there. And of course, the Celts had no money either. They didn't need any any money. Yeah. Uh, so would you say? I mean, are you saying that 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 um, that culture was about as close as it got. Yeah, that was normal for his day. Uh, the tribe took care of the tribe. The people who took care of the people. Everybody in the tribe was valuable because the whole saying was understood. It wasn't just in, in the Middle East. You had it said that uh, um, if you help others, you're helping yourself because one day it might be your turn to be helped and you need help. And so everyone in the tribe uh, was fed. Um, uh, everybody was important to the tribe. Elders were respected, they had wisdom. They had wisdom to pass on to the younger, as opposed to today. Most of the elderly today have, have, have acquired no wisdom. They've been indoctrinated just the same as the young. Uh, so it was a completely different way of living. 
um, did, and it didn't have all, all the, the any monetary problems or taxation or going off to have to work for uh, companies and all that kind of stuff uh, they grew their own food they hunted and they protected their own yeah. did that culture fall to invasion? Uh, I think invasion partly but here's the thing with money, that the money boys always know, and they say themselves in their own writings, you can always bribe certain people within every culture. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then you introduce a secret society, and once you have both of them working, then you can control the culture. All right, then they would seem then, just like what you said, that there always will be, because it comes with the flesh also, uh-huh. that there will always be some who will give up their own. Oh, within every people. You see, the traits you find are those at the top, can be found in certain people at the bottom as well. I know people who left school at 10, uh, lived on welfare all their life, and I'm telling you, they, they could scam you out of anything. They can scam the system. They, uh, they have the, the natural same... I'm not talking about all of the people, I'm talking about some of them that I've met. Uh, they just instinctively know how to benefit personally from everyone else's misery. Well, it's a, it's a psychopathic trait. So you'll find uh, the same traits as certain people at the top as you will in the bottom of the society. Uh, I'm trying to get somebody on from an organization whose uh, uh, title is an anagram, FIRE. And it has to do with um, more or less uh, watch, uh, watchdogging um, uh, universities and their apparent propensity toward, you know, fascist might be uh, too strong a word, but to a certain kind of um, militancy or constriction, far from what I think you and I remember universities to be, and especially when I went, uh, you know, on the on the uh, turn from the 60s and the 70s. I mean, with all that was going on in the United States and elsewhere, I mean, PhDs, a lot of them were at the vanguard of of trying to you know make change, and they were very student friendly, very much for free speech. It doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Um, so I want someone to come on and speak to it because some of the censorship going on is extremely, um, you know, ex- extraordinary to say the least. Yeah. But at the same time, Alan, what I'm seeing happen, and when I was at the university here, um, there was this tendency, I think, for acad- academics and a trickle down to the students that this idea that socialism is, go- socialism is going to be the answer for, the, for this millennium. Yeah, yeah. Um, one, are you picking that up? And two... Uh-huh. You know, why, why would the, you know, what are these people thinking about? Because just like we said, you know, what are we going to assume? That everybody who's a socialist is going to be a good guy? That's what they're presenting it as. It's all dialectic. Uh, look at the fascists, look what they're doing. So here, here's the opposition to fascism, which is socialism, which is nonsense, because if you're in the history, they're really one and the same thing. Yeah. Well, we they really are. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean, there seems to be two things happening here, and it doesn't make sense to me. This uh, impingement upon what I consider free speech and what I saw a lot of happen too with, with students who I were reputable students I knew them across four years their whole academic uh, their whole college careers and I mean they would and some of them felt the way that, that I did and Harry did um, and would go ahead and, and in the paper state it back it up and because the prof didn't agree with it actually got pissed at the kid yes. and wound up um, uh, being vindictive and punishing him uh, with lower grades yeah you know and I just can't, you know, I, for, for the life of me, I couldn't believe it, that they would be that small. But that's what seems to be arising on campuses. And I'm not so sure this is what uh, Dr. Leonard Peacock was talking about that was taking place in universities uh, in Germany prior to World War II. Yes, yeah. They, I think down the road they will want some kind of 
reaction from the public. They, they know they're going to get it, actually, when they bring on their whole system. We, we've only seen, uh, actually, we've only smelt the outer echelons of it. The, the rest is coming. And uh, they, they, when they mention a, a new world order, it's a totally different way of living for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they mean completely, they mean completely. Uh, so complete that most people would simply break down at the sudden change if they have to go through it. Uh, it's to be a world where you can do nothing without permission. Mm-hmm. You can't marry, you can't pick a mate. Um, everything will be done for you, decided for you, even if you can breed at all. <laughs> and this is only one part of the agenda. Uh, an, this, is the ever, this is the ongoing story, the never-ending story. We are the potter, uh, or, the, or the, the clay on the potter's wheel, and they can keep reshaping us and reshaping us forever. That's what they believe. Well, just what you said... Um you paraphrased exactly what George Bernard said, uh, Shaw said mm-hmm. in that famous comment of his in the epilogue of uh, An Intelligent Women's Guide to Socialism. Yes. You, you're going to be forcibly fed, you're going to be forcibly dressed, you'll be told where to live, and if you didn't have the industry to do this, we could, we could execute you in a kindly manner. Yes. You know? And he also wrote Man and Superman. And he said that those who could not become supermen and, and come through the change must perish. They couldn't be allowed through all the defective types, you know. That's how he phrased it. Well, we got a question for you, too. Um, listener is asking, what is the purpose of the NASCO superhighway if they are just going to collapse the U.S. economy soon? You want to take that one? It's a two-parter. Yeah, because uh, everything is ongoing. You, you'll see that uh, they'll want, they'll, they must transport troops uh, up and down the country at the right time. Uh, heavy equipment, fast, anywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, these main highways will have branches off. They're already building the branches all across the country from east to west as well to, for fast transportation mm-hmm. of, of uh, to keep... You see, we're about to get moved into habitat areas in one phase of this plan and then gradually reduced in population over the next 100, 200 years or whatever. Uh, this is all in the never-ending story, as I say. So in the meantime, as we go through the chaotic periods, they know there's going to be... Um, the people will rebel only when their back's to the wall and then it's an unorganized mob. However, they, will, they, will, they want to be able to get there and control them. That will come. <clears throat> also, uh, the NASCO people are lying about the, uh, the project. And it was funny because they said they weren't going to uh, build another highway. They were going to just expand maybe 35. And then you turn around and, and this uh, Grupo Ferrovial, a Spanish outfit, construction outfit, uh, in a PR release said they're going to be building a new highway. Yes. You know, so, so anyway, on, the, on that website, the NASCO Corridor, I believe it is, um, they're lying to us. Uh, also, I don't know if this was the case of the Trans-Canadian Highway or the QE, but um, very interesting you should say about the quick transportation of material and military personnel because the United States interstate system was built with that precisely in mind. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's why every, I think, 10 miles or so, you have to have a straight mile mm-hmm. for, the, for landing aircraft. That's right. And if anybody's driving on an interstate, you go check it out. You'll go, you go any more than 10 miles, and you will have gone through a mile straight away no matter where you are. And so it makes only sense if we're going to do this American Union thing that this also would be taking place as they uh, build arteries you know, further into Canada into, I guess, Mexico, Central America. And they're talking about going down to the Cape, aren't they? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right from north to south, it's mm-hmm. the whole way through. And it's also good to be linked up from east to west. And it's so interesting, too, because 69 yes. coming up to Ontario. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's, so, it's so funny because it's 69, and I, we've had 69 here for, I don't know, maybe 100 years. 
and and so has the US had one, and it's just those two that'll be linked together that just both happen mm-hmm. to call 69. What a what a coincidence! Eh? Oh yeah, yeah, and you know somebody sent me something along that uh, because nobody could figure out why in the world, uh, you know, up in Michigan in Nowheresville, um, they're they're going to build this like gigantic. Um, I don't know. Is I-69 up there right now? Do you know? It's what? Uh, is there an I-69 presently in Michigan? Yeah. I believe there is, right. There okay. Is one in Michigan, yeah. Yeah, and they're going to... They're going to join with the 69 right. in Ontario. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I got Everybody was wondering, why in the world are you worried about this? And they don't realize you're just a piece of the puzzle. Yes. All right. Uh, the second half of, this, of the uh, email says, the timeline does not work. We should still have years and years of buying uh, cheap crap from China right. if the high is as big as they say it will be. Now, um, if you want to comment to that, because also um, I, I've got something that just happened recently. So, uh, Alan, you want to take a shot at that? Or? Uh, well, they, they can keep it going for a long time. We know, though, for instance, that Shelley Ann Clark, uh, who helped do the voice, well, actually she drafted up all the negotiation booklets for the free trade negotiations uh, when they had that. That was the precursor to NAFTA. And it's more important to NAFTA because everything is in the preamble. That's how law always works. It gives you the definitions of the terms in the preamble. Mm-hmm. But she drafted them all up, and she said that by 2010, she says 2005 would be a public uh, uh, admission to the unification of the Americas. And sure enough, March 2005, we had that at Waco, Texas, when they all signed the agreement. And this is, this is I'm talking about the late 80s, early 90s, she came out with this stuff. I've got it on tape. And, and she said um, in 2010, it would be completed, you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I think that the 2012 is admission now that the United Nations is officially uh, the government of the world, the supreme government of the world, with all the, the sub-ones below it, you know, the United Americas uh, Parliament, which is supposed to be based in Montreal, according to Shelley Ann Clark. Um, there'll be sub-parliaments under the supreme parliament of the world, uh, of the United Nations. And Africa must be brought under that by that time, too. So that's why the push is on for Africa. Um, you know, uh, somebody sent me an email up from uh, your way and kind of lamenting the fact that I guess Quebec is talking secession again and might get it this time. So I just wrote back and said, go ahead, let them secede. We're all going into the North American Union anyway. Yes. <laughs> you see, there are two systems working here. Uh, you have your front system, which we think is politics. And if you read every book put out by the Council on Foreign Relations, generally financed, they'll tell you in the front page, financed and funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. They pay for the publishing. Mm-hmm. It, said, it will say that the Council on Foreign Relations is a member of the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Mm-hmm. And it is a non-political body. And if you read their books, their, their own books put out there, all they're discussing, discussing it to the average person, will seem to be politics, but it's not politics. No. See, politics is the game for the public to believe in. That's the mm-hmm. lower game. That's the punch and judy show for the public, the wrestling match. The real agenda is not politics. It is an agenda. There's no politics involved in the that's agenda. That's right. That's right. And that's why they can safely say that. Yeah. In fact, one of the rude awakenings... Um and, and then I think people will understand that folks like us have been, have been telling the truth, yeah, that yes, it's been a conspiracy, it doesn't mean yeah. false, it means secret, and it has happened. And that is, while everybody's yakking about Democrats in office now, da 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 and it's like, what you guys don't realize, and what you're not being told, is this North American Union thing is going to be fast-tracked for 2010, uh, 2010, and then what are you going to do when you turn around and say, well, I never heard of this, hello, we've been trying to tell you. Right after 9-11 happened, 
within about two or three months and then reaffirmed later on through different uh, news blurbs it was said that the, the CIA and CSIS that's the Canadian branch are mm-hmm. now completely amalgamated mm-hmm. in March 2005 when they showed on television here the Unification of the Americas Fortress of America they said our, our taxation bureaus um, including customs duties for imports etc would be shared between the, the, the countries yep. from then on <coughs> now bureaucrats do not work quickly <laughs> did you realize that all of that had to be set up years before 9-11 even happened for that to come into place and, be, and, and actually start working mm-hmm. right away after 9-11 yeah, uh, 9-11 well, was the excuse but uh, they'd already done it all on paper they'd, they'd done all the, the legwork the footwork and uh, the leveling of the systems to amalgamate them long, long before that um, <clears throat> one of the things that I was watching and C-SPAN sometimes will, will have this on that through the mid-90s, there were all these groups I never even heard of. And here again, the bane of the world today, I think, too, is that you've got non-governmental organizations operating in every level of government, unelected people who are making policy, and you can't throw them out because you never brought them in. That's right. Um, but, I mean, here's Rockefeller with, the, you know, the, the, the American Council for this and something of that, and there's Gergen up there and Albright up there, and they're all talking about this economic integration back in the mid-90s. That's right. And nobody knew because, you know, in a way it was on C-SPAN, but, you know, it's, it's almost like hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. Nobody really is paying attention, and if they are, they can't figure it out, and they turn the switch anyway. They, they cannot believe that this could have been planned such a long mm-hmm. time ago. And yet H.G. Wells put a book out called The Open Conspiracy. Now, he worked, it's, it's admitted now by the British government, that he was a propagandist for the British Empire, for, for Britain, for the crown itself. He was the one who coined the phrase, the war to end all wars, mm-hmm. for World War One to get all the young guys in, idealistically. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also put the book out, um, let's say, that open conspiracy, where he laid it all to the gender right, right out on, in his book. It was non-fiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, he worked with all the top professors in Cambridge and Oxford who gave him the information to write in his book. And you go even further back from him to Karl Marx, and he talked about a unified Europe, a unified Americas, and the, the, the Asian Pacific bloc, and uh, special, special, uh, most favoured nation trading status. Uh, back in the 1800s, mm-hmm. he was using that term. That's right. So we're giving to China now. And, and free trade was a very operative word back then, too. Yeah, but most uh, favored trading nation status was part of the John D. agenda written in the 1500s mm-hmm. for Queen Elizabeth I. <laughs> so you're looking upon a very old plan. And, and that's what people can't get their heads around. Uh, they, they, they can't believe we've been conned for hundreds of years. Well, that's correct. And secondly, a lot of people, when, in the last stage of denial, when I talk to someone, uh, uh, eventually, and I said, well, look, you can read it for yourself. And, of course, the last defense, the last thing they throw at you, and I understand it, is, well, why would they go ahead and publish this? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, on one hand, it could be just the sheer arrogance of the fact that you ain't going to do anything about it anyway. Yes. Uh, um, we've got a couple more comments real quick. Uh, this individual might have come in a little bit later. So what is the end game for the patriot movement, in quotes? Just pure chaos when the patriots fight the NWO? Uh, you might, uh, if you don't mind restating, we just went through that, but uh, Alan, you're just saying that it's, it's yin and yang, right? It's, it's part of the dialectic. It's, it's a dialectic. Uh, Albert Pike, uh, can't, uh, you can't tell people often enough, he always gives us our leaders. 
then Freemasonry always supplies you with the leaders for every site. Mm-hmm. And the, the leaders come out saying all the stuff that you've been sc- using as scuttlebutt uh, at little meetings or, or talks with friends, that's the intelligence gathering. They say all the right stuff, and then gradually they are the superheroes. You see, we follow the stars. We won't follow ordinary people. We want gods to follow. So they appear to be gods and superhuman. We follow them and follow them, and eventually you're giving all your faith to them. And gradually they'll bring in uh, the dialectic process where they'll say, well, here's a guy from the head of the World Bank, for instance, uh, who, and, and psychologically that floors you when he admits, yeah, you're under world government already. You, you've gradually been brought round to accepting the fact that you're already done for. Yeah. Uh, by, by the leaders that you are following to, to take you away from this. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in my situation, if I've done anything to abet, you know, the, the brainwashing of the people supposedly get it, you know, I don't know that I've done that. Um, staying out of the networks and the network's not wanting me, um, I don't have to sell crap, I don't have to lie to people, uh, but I do believe that networks, you know, one of the casualties of truth, uh, of war is truth, but also of ad- when advertising comes in, uh, truth has oh, a way of... Right. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been on shows where they flog gold and silver and, and a lot of other stuff besides. And, and I've turned a lot of shows down. I won't go on them if they're flogging the stuff that they claim are cures for everything. I won't, I won't, I will not make money off, off the those no. suffering. Um, and there's plenty who will. But, uh, the gold and silver boys too, I mean, uh, I, I keep telling them, look, it doesn't matter what you're selling is gold and silver or, or porcupine quills or seashells. Whoever runs the system and gives the value is running your life. Yeah. Um, a, a comment, uh, kind of neat from the UK, of all places. Uh, the individual writes, uh, hi, regarding students here in the UK, universities are being told to look out for would-be terrorists. It seems that campus grounds are recruiting grounds for the brainwashers. To open their mouths might spell trouble. We have new laws being introduced that make it easier to round up mentally ill people, even if they haven't committed a crime. Uh, I guess that's pre-crime arrest um, or thought criminal. Uh, they will redefine a mental health where they will redefine mental health to incorporate those that question their government and probably round up into military Halliburton-type prisons without a date for trial. Well, that, I tell you what, that's a, that's a bright cookie over there. Thank you very much for that email. Yeah, that, that's true. It's, it's also in Canada because uh, uh, in the late 90s, Alan Rock, who was the, the he, he was in charge of the, the law system for the government of Canada, single-handedly drafted up an omnibus crime bill which is identical to the Patriot Bill later passed in the U.S. Unbelievable. Which can arrest you for anything at all uh, without reason and hold you indefinitely. And it was never explained then, but nothing was happening apparently in the world, why he'd rammed this through without any opposition and why it would be also allowed to even go through. Now, of course, we know it was for what was to come in the future. Uh, so they're way ahead of us all. These guys work out the world in the future like a business plan. They look at all possible oppositions from different types of, of uh, humanity, and they actually start grooming the leaders years before they make the move to cause the event to happen. Uh, one more comment, and we're running over, so uh, uh, let me get this out. Uh, somebody writes, they already control our choices by limiting what is available and having us choose among an impoverished selection. Yet the illusion of choice seems to satisfy most people. I suppose it could get worse, and uh, it will. Alan Watt, the website is cuttingthroughthematrix.com. There were two items I wanted to speak to. I didn't get to them, and I, I really, uh, if I can, I'd like to save them for another day with you. that be all right? That'd be fine, yeah. All right, Alan, thanks very much again for coming on, and we'll see you in a short time. Sure enough. All right, bye-bye now.